Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What do you want to be when you grow up? My four-year-old daughter has divided her career plans up across the week. She declared the other day that she's going to be a doctor four days, a scientist one day, and a ballerina two days. I like to think she's exploring her options. At my eighth grade graduation, every student's name was called, and we were asked to walk to the center of the stage to a mic and to say what it was we wanted to be when we grew up. And growing up in Kansas, one might expect to hear farmer or teacher, but the number one job that people in my eighth grade graduating class intended to be when they grew up was marine biologist. Now, I'll be honest that I'm 98% sure that no one in my class had seen or set foot in the ocean, but if they taught us nothing else in middle school, they taught us to dream big. What do you want to be when you grow up? We often ask this question of children, but I think it's actually a question that continues to apply to us throughout our life. Barbara Brown Taylor, most often known as a best-selling author and an Episcopal priest, writes in her book, An Altar in the World, in my life so far, I have been a babysitter, an Avon lady, a cashier, a cheese packer, a horseback riding instructor, a nursing unit clerk, a fundraiser, a special events coordinator, a teacher of creative writing, a hospital chaplain, a pastor, a preacher, and a college professor. And those are just the things I've been paid for. Then she writes, I still have not given up on becoming a chef, a jewelry maker, a travel writer, a zookeeper, a bookstore manager, or the most secret, thrilling vocational desire of all, a member of Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> the good news about that question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is that it invites us to dream about our future. But I find that there's often a struggle with how we approach the question, because somewhere along the line, the question of what do you want to be when you grow up shifts from a question of identity and purpose to a question of achievement and status. The question shifts from what do I want to be when I grow up to what am I supposed to be when I grow up? And we quit asking where your gifts lie or where your heart is drawing you, and the central vocational question becomes a question of obligation, of duty. What will make your parents proud or make you appear impressive to your friends or ensure your financial stability and social status for years to come? When I was a campus minister, 70% of the incoming class of college students declared that they were pre-med. When I was a student, I was one of them, and so I know all too well the weight of that declaration. 
It was what you were supposed to do in order to prove to your parents that you were making the most of all that college tuition they were paying. It was the path to success. And yet, as I'm sure will shock everyone who's listening, 70% of those students did not end up going to medical school. So every fall, as campus minister, I would ask one of the first-year students if they could share their chemistry syllabus with me. And I would mark on my calendar about 48 hours after the first exam, and I would go to the grocery store and buy a big bag of chocolate and block off my calendar in anticipation of the students who would make their way into my office in a puddle of tears that their dreams had been crushed by the abysmal test results of their intro to chem class. Most of these students had never failed at anything they'd put their mind to, and because they had been scripted into the narrative that med school was what they were supposed to do, very few of them had ever done the work of asking, what is it that you're passionate about? What sets your heart on fire? They were following the script of what defined the world's success, or at least their parents' standards, and staring at this failing grade caused a kind of existential crisis. If I'm not supposed to be a doctor, then what am I supposed to do? So whether it's a professional degree or the right job that will make you a success, the assumption when we start talking about vocation is that we are what we get paid to do that our worth or our calling from God is reflected most or best in the job title that we can put on a resume. And while that's a challenging question for college freshmen, it's an even more significant question later in life. What am I supposed to be when I grow up if I've just been laid off from my job after decades? If my family relocated, but there's not an obvious job for me here? If I'm about to retire, but I have a lot of life left to live. And unfortunately, the church hasn't done us a lot of favors in this regard because in recent decades, in an effort to help people discern a call to ministry, the church has talked about vocation and calling almost entirely through the lens of whether or not you are called to be a pastor. It's a solid marketing plan for seminaries, but a fairly reductionist understanding of what it means to be called by God. Fortunately, the apostle writing to the Ephesians has a different take. When Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians in this fourth chapter, he begs us to lead a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And he isn't talking about an advanced course in career planning. His understanding of calling extends beyond your job or what you're going to be when you grow up. It extends far beyond whether or not you are discerning whether you should be called to be a pastor. His petition aims for us to seek the call of God in our whole lives, to discern the unique gifts that each of us has to share with the world. And that's a task that's relevant no matter what stage of life you may be in from middle school graduate to fresh retiree. This notion of call is connected to that Latin word vocare, tied to vocation, meaning to summon. 
And the apostle charges us to discern where God is summoning us to live and to labor and to love. The preacher Frederick Buechner so wisely unpacks it for us this way. He says, there are all different kinds of voices calling you to all different kinds of work. The problem is to figure out which is the voice of God rather than of society or, say, the superego or self-interest. He says the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's a different kind of summons than the question of what you're supposed to do when you grow up. This understanding of call sets us free from assuming that there is a job that we're supposed to do in order to live as the person that God authentically created each of us to be. It sets us free from assuming that your day job is the totality of your life's calling in order that you can use your natural gifts to experience joy and share love. And it takes off all the time constraints we place on career and leaves God open to calling us to something new at any stage of our life. But most of all, I think it reframes the question entirely. It's not a matter of what am I supposed to do when I grow up. It's a matter of what is God uniquely calling me to do to reflect Christ's love right now. On the one level, the question remains an individual one. It requires each one of us to discern how our gifts, those sources of deep gladness which will vary for each person in this room, how those sources of deep gladness can be shared with a hurting world. And it has some individual reward. When we are living authentically, it means we will spend more of our life finding meaning and experiencing joy. But the apostle isn't calling us to this work of discernment for the sake of our own happiness. The purpose of living into your calling from God, he says, is so that the body of Christ together is stronger, so that the love of Christ is more visible to the world. Ephesians is clear, every person's individual gifts given by Christ are essential for the building up of the body of Christ. The good news is that none of us is individually required to do it all, to be the Messiah. Jesus lived and died and rose for that very purpose so that we don't have to. But all of us have been given gifts that together can reflect the risen Christ's love in the world. And if making Christ visible in the world is the goal then we need every one of the unique God-given gifts to work in tandem so that the love of Christ can break through the noise and the pain of the world. Doctors Prose and Barfield were two of the many who made it through that intro to chemistry class. They even went to medical school, and they secured their spot at the top of the medical food chain as physicians at a research hospital. One day as they were rounding on patients, they noticed that one of the housekeepers on their particular unit was having a deep conversation with the parent of a pediatric patient. They'd never witnessed this before and puzzled, the two doctors went up to Malcolm, the housekeeper, and said, 
excuse me, what are you doing? And he told them, well, I visit with patients daily. And he shared the concerns that this particular parent had shared with him. He looked at these two high-powered doctors and he said, I don't see myself as a housekeeper. I'm the keeper of the house. That line on Malcolm's resume that says janitorial services doesn't begin to capture Malcolm's calling to be a compassionate listening ear for those who are going through a time of trial. And it turned out that he had a gift that that medical team needed. The blinders of the medical hierarchy had caused Prose and Barfield to miss the gifts walking their very halls every day. And soon they learned that other housekeepers on their unit had been quietly and lovingly doing the same for years. Lorna spread joy by singing Bob Marley tunes to her patients. Rosetta had a habit of slipping meal tickets to families who needed a bite to eat. Gladys was fluent in Spanish and offered words of comfort to the patients who spent most of their day listening to the news about their child in medical translation. For these individuals, their calling from God was lived out not in the work that they were doing, mopping the floor or changing the sheets, but in the way they entered the room and they engaged with other human beings with a sense of worth and dignity in themselves and in the families they met. The housekeepers didn't let their title or status stop them from using their God-given gifts for the sake of the world. And when the physicians were humble enough to see the full gifts of those fellow members of their care team, their whole team was stronger. Just like the team caring for patients at the hospital, the church is a little bit like that. We need the unique gifts of every individual for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ so that the love of God can be visible in the world. My days are filled with things that fall into the category of they didn't teach us this in seminary. And I am grateful, grateful, grateful that there are an abundance of gifts in this congregation to fill in my many gaps. From public health experts who have stepped up to the task in the last 15 months, to technical experts, to those among you who simply have nurtured long-standing relationships with each other while I still am working to get to know each and every one of you. The pastor is but one part of the whole body of Christ, and Emma and Amanda and Jonathan and I desperately need each of your gifts. We need one another's gifts and passions and insights in order that we all can grow into maturity, into that full stature of Christ, as the apostle writes. So as we re-engage in life together this fall, you're invited just as those saints in the church at Ephesus were invited to spend some time listening and reflecting on where God is calling you. Not so that the church can be another should or supposed to in your life, but because when we live out of those authentic places within ourselves, 
everyone around us is blessed and strengthened and mutually encouraged to offer their gifts for the sake of the world as well. To use your gifts, to live the life worthy of the calling to which we have been called, helps the whole body grow into maturity, into Christ the head. Here's the daunting and freeing news. This work of discernment that the apostle writes about is never done. But perhaps we can set aside the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And instead ask, what is God calling me to do to reflect Christ's love in the world right now? Because it just might be that the greatest gift we can offer to each other are to find those sources of deep gladness, as Beekner writes, and to help them meet the hungers and needs of the world. May it be so. Amen.